Our second reading is from the prophet Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry! And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will gather, carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. The word of the Lord. It's actually a particular pleasure for me to be here because I suppose it's about three years ago, was it, Johnny, that you started this church? And we, my, Kim, and my wife Kim and I had just arrived in the area and we thought we would go and check a few churches out and we went to Falls Church and it was the service at which Johnny was being expelled from Falls Church. I'm sorry, I should say, being sent out from Falls Church. So it's a tremendous pleasure to be here and to see the results three years on. So as Johnny said, I'm married to Kim, I have three children, they are 11, 10, and 6. And I'm in that stage of life when Christmas is just a wonderful, wonderful thing. It is wonderful to see the sense of expectation and promise and hope in Christmas that that, that children bring to it. And I'm learning the great wisdom of the philosopher who said, man has three stages in life. First, he believes in Father Christmas then he doesn't believe in Father Christmas, and then he is Father Christmas. So I've got to that part of life where I am Father Christmas. But as Johnny said, I didn't always love Christmas. I grew up in London, and I don't know if any of you have visited um, England or the UK, but it's a very, very different world, and the church had a little or no part at all to play in my life. I had no interest in church. I didn't think it would have anything to offer me. I wasn't against it particularly. I just thought it was completely irrelevant. What comfort could I possibly find in the church? And then age 32, my girlfriend at the time suddenly, out of the blue, became a Christian. And I was absolutely furious. This was not good news. I thought it would inevitably involve two things. First of all, money. I knew enough about Christianity that this was going to be a draw on my finances. The second thing that I thought would almost inevitably be involved is Americans. I'm not making that up. In the UK, we have this perception of evangelical Christianity. That is Christianity that actually believes in something. And we would associate that with Americans, and that's not, I'm afraid, always a very positive association. I'm sorry. 
So it was deep, with deep irony, and I think God has a great sense of humor. When I came to faith, it was at a crusade. It was through my girlfriend. She dragged me off to this crusade, and there I listened to a man by the name of Ed Cole, who was a Texan, an American Texan, and, um, and he basically, that's when I came to faith, and now here I am in the U.S. working for the American church. Isn't that wonderful? I still don't have any money, by the way. I've lived in the U.S. for eight years, and I've learned a thing or two about the difference between the U.S. and the U.K. We really are two countries separated by a common language. There are obvious differences. I wear trousers, you wear pants. Actually, I wear pants as well, (laughs) under my trousers. When we say play football, we're talking about a game that actually involves feet. When you say football, you mean hands. When, we say, when you say a World Series, what you really mean is a game played exclusively by Americans. <laughs> when we say world something, we mean a game that the British invented so that the world now plays and is much better than us at. <laughs> if it rains here, you go indoors. If it rains in England, we go out and play. There are lots of differences. There are more subtle differences. One of the most interesting things, and you can make of this what you want... But as I came, as we came, and we came to the U.S. about eight years ago, so we spent eight years in the U.S., one of the things that we found when we arrived in the U.S. is that there is a a particular cultural distinctiveness about the U.S. wrapped around one word, and it's one word that I want to spend a little time with you this morning thinking about, and that word is comfort. Do you know, are you aware of how important that word is to you as Americans? I can tell you, coming from the outside into America, it is surprising how often that word comes up. Comfort. You say, are you comfortable with that decision? You take comfort breaks. I've learned that if somebody says, I am not comfortable with that, that means absolute no. (laughs) Comfort is important to Americans. And I don't know why. I would love some psychologist to explain to me. Perhaps it's because American history was extremely uncomfortable and that the early part of American history was a a story of a lot of discomfort. And so comfort became a high value. I, I don't know. But this morning, I want to think a little bit about comfort because Christmas is a time of great comfort. It's a great comfort. It's a time when it becomes something of an orgy of comfort. Food, shopping, food, friends, food, stuff, more food. How much comfort can we stuff into ourselves in a short period of time? Now, comfort is not a bad thing. You need it. You need comfort. Ever since you were a baby, you learned how to find comfort in certain things. You sought it. You've sought to find security in your parents. If you were lucky enough to have good parents, you will have had positive comfort in your life. But with all the comforts that we enjoy in Vienna... And in this area of Northern Virginia, why is it, to quote the famous British philosopher Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones, why is it we still can't get no satisfaction? With all these material comforts that we stuff into ourselves, how come there is so much discomfort? You know, I work up in, um, uh, uh, um, I forgot where I work, Truro, that's where I work. And in that area, there are a number of high schools like this. And do you know how many suicides there have been? I'm sure you've heard about this. What is going on? We have more comfort probably than any society at any other time ever in history. Could it be that by trying to find our comfort in good things that are not ultimate things, 
we're building ourselves a snare and a trap for our hearts. And at Christmas, the church is supposed to be a place that holds out the one true comfort that can give you freedom. Christianity was sometimes dismissed in my country as nothing but an emotional crutch. Or you have faith in God, well, that's just an emotional crutch. It doesn't count. It doesn't matter. It's just an emotional crutch. And the answer is, yes, of course it is. Of course it's an emotional crutch. In fact, it is the emotional crutch. It is the place that we are supposed to seek our sense of comfort and security. And whenever we look outside of it, things start to go wrong. And this morning we read a passage from Isaiah, the great prophet. Don't think of Gandalf. He might have had a beard, he might not. A prophet simply one who speaks God's heart to his people at a particular time, at a particular place, for a particular reason. And Isaiah begins with these great words, Isaiah 40, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Comfort, comfort my people. And it got me thinking, well, what is Christian comfort? What is it that we have to offer the world? When we sing, oh, tidings of comfort and joy. What are we talking about? What is the comfort that the church is supposed to hold out at Christmas? That the rest of the world is seeking, but not finding. And the answer is, of course, because we're in a church, it's Sunday morning, it's Jesus. Yes? A Sunday school teacher once asked a class of young children, what is little and gray, eats nuts, and has a bushy tail? After a moment, one child replies, I know the answer's got to be Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel to me. I don't want to be satisfied this morning with a glib answer. Yes, the answer is Jesus. But what does it mean for me to seek comfort in Jesus Christ? What am I supposed to do? I'm interested in that in part because when we arrived here in the D.C. area, my family and I, we entered into a period of time where most of the comforts that we had been used to were stripped away. I'll tell you a little bit more about that later, but it was an incredibly uncomfortable time for us. And in that time, I found that after 16 years of being a Christian, I knew very little about how to find my comfort and reassurance in Jesus. And I had to learn all over again what it meant to find my security in Jesus when all other comforts are stripped away from you. And we're going to look at what comfort in God looks like through Mark's gospel. We read it from this morning. And I want to suggest to you that God's comfort has always been sought in the same way throughout the ages. Throughout the ages, people have sought God's comfort in the same ways. And it always involves three things. This is an Anglican church. If you don't have a sermon with three points, it's not an Anglican church. Isn't that right? Three things. It involves a past. It involves a future. And it involves a present. The way that people have sought comfort in God so that they are free from the snares of other comforts that will not satisfy is to look back to the past works of God, the future promises of God, and the present presence of God. Can we just pray for a moment before we begin? 
to look at the text. Father, I pray this morning that as we look at Mark's gospel, that we would find some comfort. That if there's anybody here with questions in their hearts, that they would have some sense of those questions being answered and being met by you, Lord, as we look at this text from Mark's gospel. And I pray that in Jesus' name. So uh, when I was preparing this talk, I did what I often do, um, which is I went and asked my wife, <laughs> what am I supposed to talk to? I want to talk about comfort. I want to talk about it because these words, those comfort, comfort my people just sprang out from the text. So I asked her, how do you comfort yourself in God? And she said, well, um, what I do is I think about the things that God has done in my life. I look back at the things that God has done in my life where I know that God has met me and that comforts me. And in fact, the people of God have always comforted themselves by first looking back. And Mark begins this gospel by looking back at an other epoch-making God event. We just have the first text text up. And it begins like this. He begins his gospel. Mark's gospel is the action-packed gospels. There are four gospels. They're biographies of Jesus. And Mark's gospel is the most action-packed. He goes straight into the action. And he starts like this. He says, the beginning of the good news. The good news. And that word gospel means good news. But actually, in its context and time, it would mean more than that. It would mean an epoch-making event. So you could talk about the gospel of Julius C- Augustus Caesar. Because the birth of Augustus Caesar was a gospel. It was an epoch-making event. But this is the good news, the epoch-making event about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written... In Isaiah the prophet. Now, let's have the next text up on. This is what Mark then points to. He says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. What's he talking about? Well, first thing, this is not Isaiah the prophet. Mark says it's Isaiah the prophet, and it is and it isn't Isaiah the prophet. Do you know what I mean by a mashup? I know that some of you uh, older guys uh, don't know what a mashup is, but for us younger ones, we know what a mashup is, right? Do you know what a mashup is? It's where you take different songs and you put them together to make another song. Well, this is a mashup. It's actually three different texts. The first part is from Exodus. The second is from a, a minor prophet called Malachi, and the third part is from Isaiah. So what Mark is doing is he's mashing up these different texts. Now, what he's not doing is what Christian preachers like myself do, which is take bits of the Bible and make them say what you want. Proof texting. What he's doing is he's evoking entire sections of the Old Testament. He's bringing back to people's memory entire parts of Israel's great story. Behold... I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. That's from Exodus. Exodus is the story of how God brought Israel out of slavery into the desert, into freedom, and eventually into the promised land. So Mark's starting by saying, do you remember that this is a God who actually does things? This is the God who actually has power. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. That's Malachi. He's a minor prophet. We'll ignore him. And then he actually gets to Isaiah, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Isaiah was writing at another time when Israel was in a moment in its history, in its story of profound discomfort. 
Israel had come out of Egypt through the desert into the promised land, but then had stepped away from God, moved away from God. And by the time you get to Isaiah, Israel has now been taken into exile, into Babylon. So Mark is saying, do you remember that? you remember the exodus? Do you remember now also that Israel was brought out of a second exile, a second great time of discomfort? These things happened. Take your comfort in them. If you are a follower of Christ, our past, our epoch-making event is the work of God through Jesus Christ. His life, death, and resurrection through which we have been reconciled to God. Christianity is unlike any other faith. For this simple reason, it's a historical faith. That doesn't mean it's being consigned to history, though sometimes it feels like that. But it is a faith based on historical events that actually happened. The life, death, and resurrection of Christianity. And in fact, Christian faith is an invitation to test and explore the historicity of its claims. And to find comfort is to constantly remind ourselves of that reality. It's not subjective. Christian faith is not subjective. It doesn't matter whether I feel good about it today or tomorrow or not. All that matters is the historical reality of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Those are objective facts that require and invite your exploration. Do you in your family have a place, a time, or in your life where you remember what God has done? Yes, in Jesus Christ, in your life. Do you make it a practice to seek your comfort in remembering what God has done? But then Mark goes on. Having found comfort in the past, he looks to the future. He says this, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist, this rather curious character who comes wearing camel hair, eating locusts, and points to something that is coming. And as Johnny said, we're in this season of Advent, this season of preparation for something that is going to come. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and this was his message. After me comes one, something is coming, the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. There is something extraordinary coming. And we're in this season of Advent, which is a penitential season. You feeling penitent? No. Not particularly. Penitence is not really about wandering around with a gloomy face, trying to look religious. It's about preparation. It's about the preparation of our hearts. And in Advent, we're remembering not that there was just once upon a time a people who were preparing their hearts for the coming Christ, but that the church, us, Christians now, are a people preparing their hearts for the coming of Christ. That Advent is not something that happened a long time ago. Advent is something that we are still in. And the great Christian comfort is not that just Christ has come, but that he will come again. It's a promise that he will make all things new. And God's people have always looked to and found comfort in the future promises of God. Promises are powerful, aren't they? 
I'm living in this wonderful season with my children where we have the promise of Christmas and it means I can get them to do just about anything I want. (laughs) Promises are powerful. I've always wanted to write a Christian book on parenting. My Christian book on parenting will be called Threats and Bribes. An honest look at parenting. You know how it goes. But promises matter to us. Most of us live, whether we know it or not, in the light of some kind of promise. If you're married, your husband or your spouse promised you something and you live in the security of that promise. A wedding anniversary is a reminder of those promises. Are God's promises reliable? We've been waiting for 2,000 years. Come on. Well, that section from Isaiah we read, where Isaiah begins to foresee a coming messenger, a coming Christ, the Messiah, was written 600 years before Jesus came. Have we waited too long for the promises of God to be fulfilled? I don't think so. I don't know how much longer we have to wait, but we live in this Advent. And the people of God have always found comfort by constantly reminding themselves of their promises in Scripture. If you were a first century Jew, this is what you would do. Tie your promises of God, the words of God, as symbols on your hands. Tie them to your hands. Bind them to your foreheads. Write the promises of God on your door frames of your houses and on your gates. If you go to an Orthodox synagogue, you will see guys with these little black boxes literally tied to their foreheads. Those are the promises of God. And it's the people who have learnt to live with the constant sense of the promises of God being imminent. My wife likes to write scriptures and pin them to the wall. Doesn't make the walls look nicer. But I've learnt the value of doing that. Okay, you say, that's all very well. But I can't just live off the past or even the promises of a glorious but distant future. I have to deal with the present. I have to deal with now. It's rather like the Washington Redskins. So when I was living in the UK, there came this moment where suddenly American football arrived on our television screens. And at that time, I remember the Washington Redskins. They were one of the two top teams. It was, I think, the Redskins and the Cowboys. And now... <laughs> And now every year the promise comes, oh, this year we've got a new quarterback and it'll be great. So we're living in the, prom- <laughs> the past and a promised future that never seems to come. I'm like, no, give us something now, now, just a win. Well, that will do. If I'm going to find comfort in this gospel in Jesus, I need something now. And you would be right to say that. Jesus said exactly the same thing. Having pointed to the past, evoking the future, Mark now brings us to the present and gives us a hint of how we are to live in the present with the great presence, the great comfort. He says this, after me comes one more powerful than I. Can we have that scripture up? The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water. but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, nothing guaranteed to make people more uncomfortable than talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. Full disclosure, I come from a charismatic Anglican background. So I grew up in, you know, grew up, as I said, in 32 years age, grew up as a Christian, age 32, at a, a church allied to Holy Trinity Brompton. I don't know if you've heard that, the Alpha Course came out of it. There's a great emphasis on the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit. But I want to acknowledge one of the things we found when we came to the U.S. is there's been great damage done in the American church in the name of the Holy Spirit. 
tremendous damage. Things have been done in the name of the Holy Spirit which are about manipulating and controlling people. Excessive emotionalism. But I can tell you, you need the Holy Spirit. I can tell you with authority because I didn't say it, Jesus did. Jesus said, you need the Holy Spirit. And if you remember in the book of the Acts, which is the story of the beginning of the church, he says to the disciples, don't do anything. Don't do anything until the Holy Spirit comes in power. The freest Christians I have ever met are always, and I'm going to qualify this, spirit-filled Christians. I'm not talking about charismatic Christians necessarily. I've met Roman Catholics, Greek Orthodox, contemplative Christians, all manner of Christians. But those who have learnt to seek their comfort in the absolute personal presence of Jesus Christ in their life find a new kind of freedom that I'm extremely jealous for. I have little truck or time with forms of religion that do not give that kind of freedom. It's easy to substitute something else to provide our religious comfort. But Jesus said, don't do that. I will be your comforter. I, I will. God himself will come alongside you as you walk through whatever you walk through as a personal presence through the Holy Spirit. There's no substitute. The Holy Spirit is the personal presence of God in your life. One of the names for the Holy Spirit is, guess what? The Comforter. It's one of the names of the Holy Spirit. In John 14, it says this, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance past, all the things that I have said to you, the promises, future. How do you get the Holy Spirit? You ask. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him, says Luke. So that's it. That's how we find our comfort. Easy, isn't it? The past work of God, we look back to it. The future promises of God and the present presence of God. Let me say that again. The past work of God the future promises of God and the present presences of God. You need all three. Why does it matter? I'll tell you why it matters. And I said I was going to say a little bit about our story. I'm not going to go on at length about this. But when we arrived in Washington, D.C., we had come to America on a slightly false pretext. I used to work in video production, but I was part of a large church, and that large church was planting churches left, right, and center, and they kind of conned us into saying, well, you can go with them as a family, and you can just be there for a year and a half, and you'll help them bless the church and help them get going, and then you can come back. So a friend of mine came to America. We came out with them. We thought it would be for a year and a half. Turned into an absolute nightmare, real nightmare, and everything went wrong, and eight years later, I'm still here. Five years after being in Charlotte, having sensed a strong call, which was very discomforting at the time, to work in the church, we were expelled from our church for good reasons. But our time had come to an end in Charlotte. We were in Charlotte, North Carolina. We felt like we weren't going to be there forever. We said we were going to go. And then they said, great, well, you better go then, didn't you? So there came a time where we were kind of expelled. We were given some money. 
They were very generous, and suddenly they called us missionaries. They said, Matt and Kim, you've become missionaries. Well, like, how did that happen? <laughs> I used to work in video production. I came to America for a year and a half, and now I'm a missionary five years on. That's not what I wanted. It's not what I wanted. It's not what I signed up for. And we were exploring various things up here in the, in the D.C. area. So suddenly we were being sent out, pushed out, kindly, with love. And we arrived in the D.C. area, and it was very, very hard. We moved into a time where we had X amount of money. We could see the cliff edge advancing. No job. I wasn't ordained. Feeling completely mad and crazy. No friends. No family here. No support structures. No church. Nothing. All the comforts that I had learned to rely on were stripped away. And then the number one thing. As I said, I grew up in a charismatic tradition. I grew up with this sense of the strong sense of presence of God with me all the time. And when we came up here, that went. Suddenly I found myself feeling like, experientially, where is God? As if he'd been stripped away from me now. Now, I don't think that that's right biblically, but sometimes experientially, that's what we experience. Where is God? God is always present, but sometimes we experience that he's not. So every possible comfort was stripped away from me. And in that time, after 16 years of being a Christian, I did not know or have the resources or the robustness of knowing how to seek comfort in God. So what I did was I tipped back to old Matthew. And some of the comforts that I used to draw on get really angry. That's comforting. People find anger, comfort in anger. Start thinking about all the wrong things that have happened, the wrong things that people have done. Unforgiveness. That's comforting for a while. You know that the Bible says that there is comfort in sin for a season. In that time, I had not developed the sort of comfort muscles that easily allowed me to cope with it. And I can promise you a time like that will come. It may not be very uh, uh, difficult or it may be very more difficult or less difficult. I don't know. But Jesus, again, says this to Simon Peter, one of his early disciples. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. There will come a testing time. But I, Jesus says, have prayed, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And I found in that time of testing for us were all our comforts. And my wife also uh, went into a season of being really unwell. It all happened at the same time. When those comforts were stripped away, I had to relearn my faith. I had to relearn a faith that is based not on my feelings and my experience, but on the past work of God. And as I said, my wife started to write the promises of God up on the walls, and we're still doing that, to learn to live in that comfort so we don't tip back into the kind of comforts that destroy us. And it's not just for me, it's for the church as well. I don't know if you've noticed, but the American church is going through something of a rocky path right now. Many of the comforts that if you've been around for the church for a long time are being stripped away. Society is changing very fast around us, very, very fast. And in those moments, it's very tempting for the church to seek the wrong kinds of comforts, to get very angry about what's happening, to become tribal in our mentality. Let's gather together with those who are right. Point a finger at those who aren't. And then it's divide. And then when we divide it, we can divide again. It's comforting to be surrounded by those who agree with you, isn't it? But Jesus says, no, don't look for the comfort there. 
It's important that you understand Jesus right. Orthodoxy is important. If you said the wrong things about my wife, I'd gently correct you. If you said very wrong things about my wife, I'll punch you on the nose. But it's about the person. Seek, learn to seek. As a church, we need to learn to seek our comfort, not in our rightness or our orthodoxy, as important as that is, but it's in the person of Jesus, the past works, the future promise, and the present presence of Jesus. And that's important not just for us inside the church, but if you're here this morning exploring faith, it's important to you. Do you know that the church is no longer a reassuring presence in American society? If we don't know that, we're missing it. A guy like me walking down the street with a dog collar on is no longer reassuring. It's a threat. Religion of any kind is a bad thing, increasingly, increasingly. There was a time in American society you might not have believed in Christ, you might not have believed in the church, but hey, the church was generally a good thing and pastors were generally good people. Kind of reassuring. Not anymore. That's gone. And as churches, we need to learn to get strip off all the things that make us feel comfortable as Christians so that those who need the comfort of Jesus Christ can find him. Ultimately, this is about your freedom. As Christianity is, that's what salvation means. To move into salvation is to move into freedom. And if you seek your comfort outside of the works, promises, and presences of Christ, you can't be free. They're good things, many good things you can enjoy, but that's not the place to seek your comfort. So as I draw to close, I want to think briefly, if you want to be free, which I assume you do, how do we develop this muscle of finding the comfort in God? Well, all comforts are habits. All comforts are habits. They are habits that you form so that when the pressure comes on, you return to them. You can have good habits and you can have bad habits. And part of the Christian life is simply this, intentionally developing new habits. Intentionally developing ways where you look back at the work of God in your life in Christ, where you immerse yourself in the promises of God and practice the presence of God. That's what we do when we're celebrating the Eucharist. That's what we're doing. We're looking back at the work of God in Christ Jesus. We're reminding ourselves of that again and again, every week, every week we do it again and again until it becomes habitual to remember that to find our security and comfort in the facts and work of the life of Jesus Christ. But we're also looking forward in the Eucharist to the great banquet that is offered to us. When God will come and make all things new, there is a great banquet to which all are invited, anyone who wants to respond. And we're reminding ourselves of that as well. But we also believe that as we take the Eucharist, Christ is present. However you figure that in your mind, that Jesus Christ is really present. So we're seeking comfort in him now. We need, as a church and as individuals, to develop this muscle of finding comfort solely, ultimately, in the person of Jesus Christ. Nothing else will do. Nothing. Religion? No. The comforts of material goods? That's not going to do it. Good things. All good things. We need to learn to develop this muscle so that we can be free. Will you pray with me? You see, if we'll find our comfort in the person of Jesus Christ, 
Then as Isaiah, the prophet, foresaw, every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level and the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it. So, Father, I just want to invite your spirit now. Thank you that you're here. And as I pray, Lord, that, um, that as we continue with this service, that you continue to meet us. For anyone here who's this morning doesn't know what it means to find comfort in the person of Jesus, I pray you'd show yourself to them. Thank you that you came, that you lived, that you died, and that you rose again. And we can be secure in that. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for the promise that you will come again. And in that time, you will make all things new. And thank you that you are present now. That you walk alongside us. That you are our comforter. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.